Okay, we're back from the break. And during the break, a question was asked about a, um, a dictionary tool that's in, that comes in Logos called the Low Nighted Dictionary of Semantic Domains. Related to that dictionary of semantic domains, you have a Greek lexicon as well as a Hebrew lexicon. And as I was just saying, then what one way in which it does this is it groups the words according to uh, synonyms. Now, the way we got here in Lagos is we did a right-click on the word patience, and it listed in, it opened up a, a guide window, and on the right-hand side, you have various options as to which you want to study. One of them is your Greek Strong's number. Another is this low nighted number. Low nighted does the same thing as Strong's, and there's a couple other numbering systems where they list all the Greek words, all the Hebrew words, and assign them numbers. List them all alphabetically and assign them numbers from 1 to 10,000 or whatever. So the low nighted number is 25. 25 is a certain category, and then it's 174 underneath that. So we just clicked on that, and that took us over here to uh, this paragraph. Now, if I go all the way up to the top, this is all under the category of attitudes and emotions. And then underneath that, we have a, a list of all of the different types of categories of attitudes and emotions that we find in the Scripture. Uh, he, we come down to O, which is patience, endurance, and perseverance. And we have a list of Greek words that are there. Now, with Lagos, see, you don't even have to know Greek to get to this point. It automatically took you straight to Hupomone, and you click on that, and it identifies as the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances, uh, being translated endurance or being able to endure. Then it gives you a um, Greek example, which I'll translate it for you, the endurance of the hope of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's from First Thess 1.3, which is then uh, translated here, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Inspired isn't in that Greek sentence at all. The endurance of the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Inspired is an interpretation. It's been inserted in the translation. That's my yeah. It's with him, but it's also with the NIV. That may be an NIV trans- translation. That's why you hear me. Yeah, you know how I facetiously refer to it as the NIV commentary? This is why. This translator has reached an interpretive conclusion that he's inserted as the translation, but there's no original Greek word that indicates that. All you have is a genitive phrase, uh, uh, the endurance of the hope of the Lord, of our Lord. So, He's inserting what, what's that relation of that of our Lord in what sense does it it comes from our Lord, so he's then inserting the word inspired, but that's not in the text. Um, okay, thanks, Pat. And then you were saying it was different from macrothemia. Yeah, they overlap. They're like a lot of synonyms. Synonyms overlap. They have an area of common meaning, but then they also have areas that aren't identical. And macrothemia from makros meaning long and themia meaning anger, long to get angry or 
you know, long-suffering. And so this is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. That's why it's better to translate makrothemia as patience and in and the hupomene group as endurance, whereas the King James translates hupomene in James 1, 3, and 4 as patience. That misses it. This one, yes, hoopa right. Monet here. Yep, it's a different low nine number, so I didn't understand. Why it was a different low nine right, number? Right, right. Ninety-two twenty-four. Yeah. Okay, let's. Or, or I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Never mind. Never mind. I was getting hooked up on hope. Okay. I got hooked up on the article. I shouldn't have. Oh, yeah, you're, you're on the article up here. Down here is Hupo Yeah, my fault. Sorry. 25174. Okay. Yeah. All right, but that's, and this is good for figuring out synonyms. If you, as you get more advanced in word studies, one of the things you look at is, is synonyms because as we've seen here, there, there's a close relationship between the idea of patience as a mental attitude. Um, I liked what it said, what he said up here a mental attitude of emotional calm in the face of provocation or, or difficult circumstances. That is related to endurance. Those are complementary and overlapping concepts. So when you see the conclusion and, you see, and, and the introduction and you see both these words there used as synonyms, that helps you identify what the, what the theme is. All right, now... I want to just go back. I want to give you a little assignment. Let's go to Romans 1. This is a verse that we've talked about many, many times. And we just want to make some observations here. And this is where... I'm talking about observations related to related to structure. That's it, right? Okay. Related to structure. Let me close out of Lonida. Go back over here to Romans 1, 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, let's just look at this. We're, we're, we're approaching a verse, and we're going to talk about structure. What are the? Th- Let me remind you of the things that we're looking for. We're looking for w- relations within the paragraph, uh, grammatical relations. Now, remember, a noun is a word that names things. A verb is an action or a state. Like when you say, uh, he is. Is is talking about a state of existence. Or he becomes. That's talking about a state of existence or becoming something, going from one state to another state. Uh, he runs, he shops, he spends money. All of those are active verbs. Okay, so we want to look at who, what are the verbs, and what's who performs the action of the verb? Now, the subject of a verb can be a noun, 
God, Jesus, Peter, Paul. It can be a pronoun, singular pronoun, he. It can be a plural pronoun, they or them. It can be an infinitive. Um, To read is a noble thing to do. See, to read functions like a noun in that sentence. To read is a noble thing to do. So in that sentence, the infinitive functions like a, like a noun. Uh, a gerund, um, running is a terrible thing to do. It'll mess up your knees, right? Running is a terrible thing to do, or, or, or shopping will wear you out. You know, you're using that gerund or participle like a noun, um, or you, sometimes it can be a whole claw, a dependent clause, like the um, um, like the, uh, the 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 lady at the store stole from the teller or stole from the cash register. See, the lady at the store, the lady or or, or the, the the lady who I saw at the store. So you get that relative clause in there. That can be the whole subject of the main verb. Uh, so we're going to look at something like that. So. For some reason, this is slipping on me. Okay, look at... So the first thing you're going to ask, you can write these questions down as I give them to you. The first thing you're going to ask is, okay, what's, what, what, are, what are the main verbs? What are the finite verbs? Not participles or infinitives, but what, what are the finite verbs? For the wrath of God is revealed from... <clears throat> from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What are your verbs or verbal ideas? Just working from the English. Now, what I've done for your benefit, now look up at the screen because this will really help you. When you see a N in front of the word, that's a noun. When you see a V in front of it, what is that? That's a verb. Okay, very good. So when you come down, let's skip down to verse 19. Uh, where's your first verb in verse 19? Is. And it's a verb. The P is for present. A is for active. I is for indicative. And then there's a number, third person singular. If it has a numeral, it, that means it's a finite verb because it has a third person singular. If it is... Um, let me see here if I can find one. Um, okay, here we go. Understood. It's a verb. Do you see a number there? No. See, and you have a little window that shows up down here at the bottom that tells you what that abbreviation stands for. I can't read it on a good day. Um it's a verb. It's a present passive participle, um, plural nominative, neuter nominative, and that. But there's no number there, so that's a verbal, what they call a verbal, as opposed to a verb. It's not finite. Finite is finite because he hit, she hit, I hit. It's finite. One person or one specific group of people did the action. Running. See that's. Any group, it's not identifying who's doing it. It's just, it's just loose there. It's unstated. A hitting, you know, it's just loose. It's unstated. Eating, 
you know, it's not finite. It's an, in, or, or an infinitive or a participle are not finite verbs. So to identify clauses, you're looking for, and in English, you just can't do this, so don't worry about it. Um, you, unless you have a program that can do this. Has anybody found an online program that gives you a, a, a access to, a, to an interlinear? Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible does. Okay, Blue Letter Bible and Bible. BibleHelp.com? BibleHub.com. BibleHub.com. Okay, those are two places. You can look your verses up there, and they can give you uh, this kind of information. So we're looking at verse 18, and if I'm working through this, I'm going to ask the question, what's your main verb? The main verb looks like it's going to be is, but it's in, in English it's is revealed, and that reflects, as you see underneath it, there's only one word, apocalypto, and that's that's your first finite verb. So what what is the subject of that verb? What's the subject of the verb? What is revealed? Wrath. Wrath is revealed. Wrath is the subject. Wrath is revealed. Uh, what kind of wrath? Or whose wrath? What do we know about the wrath? It's God's wrath. It's mod- wrath is modified by two things. It's modified by a definite article, the, and it's modified by a prepositional phrase, of God. What does of God signify? It indicates its source or ownership. could be possession uh, but it's source. It's it's whose wrath it is. It's God's wrath. So this this what we would look at here. We say okay, uh, the verb is that something is revealed, and what is revealed is wrath. So that the subject of the sentence is wrath, and wrath is revealed. This is the main verb of the sentence, and then you can parse it. It's a present tense. Uh, verb, present, active, indicative, or here it's, oh, it's passive, present, passive, verb, present, passive, indicative, third person, singular. You can parse that. That would be uh, an observation. Um, Then you have, for the wrath of God is revealed, and what, what is said about the verb? Yeah, you have two two prepositional phrases that describe the verb. It's from heaven is the first prepositional phrase, and against all, and is your second against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, is your second. Uh, all modifies both ungodliness and unrighteousness of men modifies both ungodliness and unrighteousness. So you have in that uh, prepositional phrase there against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, you have uh, of men, you have a compound um, uh, object of your first preposition. The first preposition is against, and it has two objects, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then it modifies those 
with the phrase of men, which tells us who are, who's performing the ungodliness and the unrighteousness. Um, to both yeah, that, and unrighteousness. Is that a, is that a grammar rule? Uh, yeah, it, 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 it might not, but in most cases, all can would, would take would modify both both nouns following it. But that's a good question because sure no, it's not. But it um, uh, it it probably does. Uh, you can also think it through logically. Would it be true to say that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and some unrighteousness? Well, that works in this case, right? Because it makes sense. But there's other situations where it's not so... Right, and then you have to ask other questions. Okay? You're, you're right, because it's not, it's not always the same. That's, that's, but that's how you investigate that, is you say, does all apply to both unrighteousness and, and ungodliness? Then you ask the question, what's the relationship between ungodliness and unrighteousness? Are they synonyms? Yeah, they're synonyms here. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are used as, as synonyms. They're talking about the same kind of disobedient behavior. Maybe from different perspectives, but they're but they're but they're synonyms. So all uh, would modify both of those. Uh, in other places, it would depend on the. You got to look at the context. Remember, context is is always. You go back and you say, well, does that apply to both, or are they? Well, so you're thinking in this situation was because they're synonyms. Yeah. Right, you're concluding that all applies to both. Right. Okay. Yeah. But what does the article do? Which article? Ungodliness uh, and the unrighteousness. There's, well, if you look at the Greek, there's no article. Oh. Okay. See, that, that's, that's where you get into, um, and then you get, now this, this, this is getting beyond the, yeah, it is a good question. I mean, you're asking good questions. But what happens is, and, you know, you know, so every now and then, I'm going to have a little rabbit trail here. Every now and then people say, you get so technical sometimes. You know why I get technical? Because I got people that are going to ask questions like, good questions like Judy just asked. And they're important questions. And if I don't get into technicalities, then you're just, you, you, you're leaving things, you know, undeveloped. And, and, and sometimes these are really important questions. Now, what's interesting is that, um, Without mentioning any names, so y'all know who I, uh, I'm talking about. Uh, in John one one begins in the beginning was the Word, and I'll, let me just I'll just show you this because this is this is one of those little fun things you learn. And do you have? You can look at that. Maybe you've learned enough now to see what's the, that the second line is the Greek word. Is there an article associated with the word arche, beginning, no. in the Greek? No. So <clears throat> there have been some who have said that means that it's an indefinite noun, and it should be translated something like in a beginning, which was not a beginning. However, the way you investigate something like this is you would look at every use of N plus RK. And you would look then at a broader category of every use of a, par of a preposition 
that is affixed to a noun. And what you discover is that in many, many cases, not all, there are some exceptions usually for emphasis, but in many, many cases, the definite article gets replaced by the, by, by the preposition without losing the definiteness of the noun. Because the article's left off for the emphasis in this case, right? So in the well, no, it just it just Greek style is you don't say in te arche. You if you're going to say in if you got te arche the beginning and you're going to say in the beginning, you would just say in arche. You the article is replaced by the preposition stylistically, and it doesn't change the definiteness of the noun. So it's not, if you study the usage, and I went back and did this one time when I was teaching John years ago, I went back and I looked at this, and there are a, like about, I forget how many, there's a lot of uses of, of, uh, of nouns within, but it's very rare to find a time when the preposition and the article are both there. And that's true with other other prepositions. That's that's the kinds of things, nitty gritty kinds of stuff you have to get um, to get into in order to to study out what's the nuance of the word, what's the significance of it. So um, that was just a little aside because most of you probably heard somebody at some time say in a beginning which was not a beginning, which if you really parse that in English, it doesn't mean anything. So, uh, but it sounds good. So, but that doesn't reflect the Greek. So we, we look at Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, source, against two things, unrighteousness and ungodliness, linked together with a conjunction and, of men. And from the broad context, you know that it's obviously talking about ungodliness of men and unrighteousness of men. And then... Um, you have a final uh, a final um, clause there. Who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness? What kind of clause is that? Starts with a who. Who, which are relative pronouns. So this would be a relative clause. Relative pronoun becomes the subject of the verb in that clause. What's the verb in the clause? Suppress. Suppress. Who performs the action of suppression? No, the answer to that question is that's right. Who performs the action? (laughs) Who's on first? That's right. Very good. Yeah. Who is the subject? To what does the relative pronoun who refer? Hmm? Men. So who refers to men? The way you can determine that is that the relative pronoun, if you're looking at at these lines, is a genitive plural, uh, right? Yeah, genitive plural masculine. And men is a genitive plural masculine. The relative pronoun has to agree in person, case, and number with its antecedent, that is the word to which it refers. So 
ungodly, unrighteous men perform the action of suppression. What are they suppressing? The truth. The truth is the direct object of the verb, and they do it in unrighteousness, which expresses the means or the instrument used to perform the action of the verb. So the instrument that they use to suppress truth is unrighteousness. That has great political application, and I won't go there. But it has to do with all unbelievers who are denying the truth of God's word. They use unrighteous means to suppress truth. We can't expect those who are suppressing truth to use righteousness in their methodology. Whether we're talking about the truth of God or we're talking about politics or we're talking about anything else. Because when their methodology is unrighteous, the instrument they're using is unrighteousness, then they're, they're, you can't have uh, legitimacy and integrity to their actions. Okay, any questions? Jeff. Um, so going back to the, the Greek dictionary, right? So when we look at the English dictionary, dictionary gets its content from usage, right? Right. The same is true of the Greek. Right. How do you know a good Greek dictionary from a bad one? Or, or is there such a thing? Or are they all kind of okay? No. Yeah, they're all kind of okay. The good ones are okay. I mean, they're better ones for various reasons, and they have different characteristics, and it's really hard to get that information. Trust me, I know. I've been trying to find article. Every now and then you find an article. For example, you'll, you hear me refer to Arnton Gingrich, and you heard Pastor Theme refer to Arnton Gingrich. Well, he had the first edition. They're now on the third edition, and they've been given different designations. Arnton Gingrich was really uh, originally from the, from the German dictionary by F.C. Bauer, so it was referred to by B.A.G., by those initials, BAG. And then a Lutheran scholar uh, here in America named Frederick Danker revised it and, imp- and improved it and updated it with new information that we have and new studies and things like that. So the second edition was Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, edited by Danker, so it became known as Bag D. And then Danker completely revised the whole dictionary uh, over the next 20 years, utilizing a lot of the semantic domain philosophy of Eugene Nida and brought that information in on the third one, which became known as BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. So uh, I did that for Pat's uh, information. Fortunately, when BDAG came out in about 2000 or 2001, there was a couple of good critical book reviews. And so they went through and identified the strengths and weakness of the new edition. Those kinds of things get really into deep scholarly stuff, and you've got to really know the language. But you, the thing you can bring away with something like that is that, that modern linguistics is deeply profoundly impacted by postmodernism. Semantics and language philosophy and meaning of terms is profoundly impacted by, by postmodern concepts could, because in postmodernism there's no absolute. What that means is there's no definitions because the definition of a word is an absolute. So postmodernism doesn't have absolute definitions. 
And that has a horrible impact for language and meaning. That's why the battleground today, as you've listened to so many things that I've said and Charlie said and others have said at, at pastor's conferences, the battlefield today is over hermeneutics. What does it mean? Because if words don't have absolute or locked-in definite meanings and everything is fluid, then you can't know what anything means. And black is white and white is red and red is green and blue is purple. So that's why that's the battlefield, That's a, and that's a good question. There are some different dictionaries that are out there, some of the older ones that are available. Uh, they're more available because they're, they've been out for so long. They're um, usually in public domain, and so they come with some different programs. Thayer's good. Uh, there's one that's just finally coming into uh, Lagos that I've been asking them to put in there for 12 years now called Abbott Smith. Mark Perkins and I are salivating. It comes out next week, and we just can't wait because we're tired of getting that one book off the shelf all the time. And um, But you just learn, you know, those kinds of things as you go through seminary. Um, you learn different things about different tools. For the purposes of what we'd be doing with the Bible study methods. The, the best thing for you to do, like I said, is, is using, at, at your level, using Strong's and using Vine's. And 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 that's that's elementary, okay. It's safe. Uh, if there's a problem, it's oversimplification, but it's it's going to get you. It's it's you're you're at a first second grade level. You know, I'm operating at a much higher level. But when the the two or three years before I went to seminary, when I was a senior, and at at Stephen F. Austin, I went down to this little bitty books Christian bookstore about a block off of campus. And I bought an interlinear, and I bought vines, and I bought one of those Irving Jensen study guides things that makes you do what I've been having you do, go through paragraph everything, identify every paragraph, draw synthetic outlines and diagram everything. And I just worked my way all the way through First Peter in one of those books, and then I did it with, with James. And I just, I just followed all those little step-by-step in, instructions. And all I had was these basic elementary tools. I, I didn't know anything about Art and Gingrich or Greek or anything else. And I just, you know, I taught myself how to read Greek vocabulary so I could at least see, okay, it looks like that word and that word are the same word. And I could, you know, basically make it make it out. But But I had no other knowledge than that. So, and that's to encourage you because anybody can can study at that level and get a lot out of it. And that's just that's just the first step in in a series of steps. So, but it's important to learn grammar and to work through these kinds of things on 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 structure. Let's go to another passage before we finish it up tonight. Let's go to Mark chapter nine. Now I want to move into some other er- types of literature. We've been working a lot in in epistolary literature. Now we're going to go to narrative literature, and I want you to, the assignment for next week is in Nehemiah. I don't have the um, syllabus up here. Somebody look, look it up. I can't remember the exact passage in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11? Yeah, I want you to work on structure in Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11. For next time, that's going to take you into an Old Testament uh, book with a little bit different type of. 
as detailed as you want to get. <laughs> Much time as you have. Okay. That's what's so hard for guys going through seminary or going through Bible college is because when you're studying the Bible, it's really open-ended. You can work on it for two hours or for 20 hours. And I remember Randy Price gave me a great piece of advice. He was two years ahead of me in seminary because I taught school for a couple of years. And he said the difference at Dallas Seminary back in those days, you had about uh, 1,200 to 1,500 applicants for every two, for 200 positions. It's not that way anymore. Now you have about 1,400 applicants for 1,500 positions, so the quality control has dropped tremendously. It's been that way since the early 80s. But in the mid-70s, with all the baby boomers, it was it, it, it was a, a, a real competition to get in. And Randy said, you know, anybody here can make straight A's. Nobody here is a dummy. The issue is how much time do you have? There are guys here who are married, guys who have kids, guys who have to work 20, 30 hours a week, and they just can't make A's because they don't have the time. They can't put 30 hours into an assignment. But there are other guys who can put 50 hours into every assignment, and, and, and they're going to excel. And so the issue a lot of times is just how much time you can give to, to an assignment. And that's one of the hardest things when I work with seminary students is working with time management. It's not a matter of, of always getting the highest grade. It's you've got five hours to do the project. Do your best in those five hours. Because when you get out of school and you're married and you have two kids and you're teaching five times a week and two people die during the week and your one of your deacons' kid gets arrested for drug possession and, um, and you've got a cold, you've got two hours to put together the Bible class and you've got to do it in that length of time because everything else is crowded in. It's a matter of time management. So does that answer your question? <laughs> you know, just... Whatever you want to do, put it in there. Okay, uh, let's look at at, um, Mark 9. Okay, verse 1, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Okay, now, uh, who is he? Okay, what's uh, so you have your introductory, that's, that's an independent clause, he said to them. Jesus is talking, who are the them? To, the them refers to which disciples? Peter, James, and John. Not yet. Who's the them? It's it's his disciple. It's the twelve. Okay, Deci- his disciples has it could be five, six, eight, ten, fifty, a hundred. I was looking for the twelve. You know, his twelve disciples. So he's talking to his twelve disciples. He says, "I say to you." So he speak. Jesus is speaking. What's the main verb? Saying, Jesus saying, and he's uh, he's addressing his uh, so the um, indirect object is you, his his listeners. That there are some standing here. Um, 
So your next verb, uh, your next word is that. What is that? What's the function of that in the in the clause that there are some standing here? Okay, let's go back to seventh grade. Yeah, you, you're partially right. You probably lost the vocabulary. Remember, in in, in second or seventh grade, we were introduced to direct and indirect discourse. Direct discourse was John said, "Quote, I went to the store." Indirect discourse was John said that he went to the store. How is the quote introduced in indirect discourse? With the word that. John said that he went to the store. It's not John said, comma, quote, I went to the store. The comma and the quotation marks are replaced by the English word that. So that's what's going on here, is the word that is introducing uh, an indirect statement. Jesus says, I say to you that there are some. What, what's the function of some? It's descriptive, it's quantitative, it's telling you that there's a, a subgroup of the whole group. Okay, it's an adjective. There are some of you, the whole group, that will not taste death, which means they will not die, until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Okay, that's the introduction. Let's go to verse 2. Jesus took, after, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Okay, how many people are involved? Four. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Uh, who, what's the verb? Hmm? Took. Took. Who performs the action of taking? Jesus. What is the subject of the sentence? Peter, James, and John. No. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> the verb is took. This, the one who performs the actions, the grammatical subject of the sentence, that's Jesus. Who receives the action of the verb? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They're the direct objects of the verb took. He takes three instead of the twelve, so nine are left behind. These are this, these are all ba- the kinds of observations you would be taking as you go through through this, and led them up. What is and? Hmm? What part of speech is and? Conjunction. Conjunction. What is it linking? Jesus taking and then. Right, and it's linking the two verbs so that the subject of both verbs is Jesus. Jesus took and Jesus led. Who did Jesus lead? Well, that's right, but no, he led them. It's a plural pronoun. To whom does them refer? The antecedent is Peter, James, and John. He took them, and then we have a direction up on a high mountain. And then the next word is apart by themselves. Oh, okay. Have I? 
Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Thanks for telling me that. Uh, he took the, and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. Now, in English, I'm not going to worry about the Greek here. In English, I'll give you a new word. I'm going to give you two new words in this. It's pleonasm. Pleonasm. P-L-E-O-N-A-S-M. You can look that up later. I had to look it up this afternoon. It's not a grammatical thing I run into enough. Whenever I hit it, I have to go, okay, what is that again? I, got, I can't remember that. Okay, a pleonasm is when you have, when you use more words than necessary to describe something. You could say Jesus led them apart, and that tells you he separated them off by themselves. When, Jesus, when it says he led them apart by themselves, that's almost a redundancy. Now, the question should be, why is that used? What, is there an imp, what, would, what would be the reason for doing that? Well, that connects um, apart by themselves with some, right? Okay, right. So it, it, we, it, it does, but so does apart. He, he takes them apart. So that's telling you he's separating them. But apart by themselves is redundant. It drives the point home. It, emphasis. It drives the point home. He's, he's make, the writer is making clear the reader understands something. So it's, it's driving the point home. That's um, an illustration of the NIV as where they were all alone. Where they were all alone, yes. Yes. It's a, it's an, actually, it's an idiom in the Greek, so it's a little... You, you'd have to translate it somewhat idiomatically into English, too. Um, so he takes them apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. What's the verb? Was transfigured. Who performs the action verb? Right. He, pronoun, first person, uh, or third person singular pronoun refers back to Jesus performs the action, and then you have a prepositional phrase before them. Them refers back to those three. In a, past ten, in a passive tense, like was transfigured, he may have been transfigured by someone else, so he may not have performed it, although he is the subject. Um, Even, I mean, it's, it's just not yeah, it's always a, a safe assumption. Right. It's an errors passive indicative, which means, very good point, very good observation that he is not performing the action of transfiguring, but he's receiving the action because it's a passive verb. He's receiving the action, so he is being transfigured. Then uh, verse 3 says, His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Okay? We'll wrap up in just a second. Okay, I wanted to look at, uh, that's really a, uh, I wanted to look at that. Okay, so uh, what's the verb? What's the verb? Oh, the verb, uh, became. Became. They became, it's genomai, which indicates becoming something it wasn't before. Uh, what is, what becomes something? What's the subject of the verb? Clothes, his, his, his robe, his, that is the subject. Um, 
It's modified by the pronoun his, which refers to Jesus, and became shining exceedingly white like snow. What kind of figure of speech is like snow? It's a simile. It's comparing the whiteness of the garment to the whiteness of snow. And then it goes further and says, such as no launderer on earth um, can whiten them. What's the meaning of the word launderer? A specialist in the one or more of the processes in the treatment of cloth, including fulling. Since the English term fuller refers to one who shrinks and thickens cloth, a more general rendering such as cloth refiner is recovered to cover the various components. It's really important to look at a word like this. The English, uh, I think King James translates it a fuller. How many of you all know what a fuller is? What we do now. You do now. You look it up. And a fuller is someone who engages in the process of fulling. He is separating cloth and uh, whitening it, bleaching it, in preparation for the, the dyeing process. So um, uh, that's where we get our word. Also, uh, there are several other words that, that go along with it. You can look up the word in English. Um, Someone who is fulling, a person whose occupation is fulling cloth. Uh, so it, let's see if this gives us any. I've got to find the meaning of the word. See, I looked this up earlier, and it was not difficult at all. Okay, here we go. A, a verb means to clean, shrink, and felt cloth by heat, pressure, and moisture. Doesn't give us a lot of information. Go to the, go to Wikipedia. They give you a much better definition of fuller and background. It's really interesting. Just go go read it. But that's the importance of looking words like this up in the dictionary and not just assuming you know something about it. Jesus uses a very technical process, term. For somebody who has a technical job in the whole process of making cloth where when they would take the wool and they would pound it out and they would weave it and then they would immerse it into bleach in order to purify the cloth and make it white to get rid of all of the, and they would get rid of all of the impurities before they would dye the cloth. And so this is a, a technical term uh, indicating how uh, pure and white a garment would be. No other process in human manu manufacturing would do that. Um, a couple other things. It says, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Let's look at the pronouns. Who's them? Peter, David, John, Jesus. Hmm? Can you uh, flip the page back, Robbie? Oh, sorry. Ooh. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Who is the them that he that Elijah appears to with Moses? Peter, James, and John. It could have referred to Peter, James, John, and Jesus. 
Now that's where you have to look at some interesting things. He appeared to them with Moses, and they, who's the they? Elijah and Moses are the nearest reference. They were talking with Jesus. So Jesus seems to be separated from the them. So the them would appear to be consistent with your previous use of them, which back in uh, he was transfigured before them, that that would refer to the three disciples. So... Hmm? Well, not necessarily. Elijah appeared to them. It could be with Jesus, but Jesus, they were talking. Who's the they here? Elijah and Moses. They were talking with Jesus. The them could be all of them. It's not a significant point, but but it's important to identify your pronouns. And they is going to be Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus. They're not talking to Peter, James, and John. James and John are just sitting there listening to a conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And they're kind of blown away. So anyway, that just just structure is an observation is going through, identifying the verb, who performs the action, who the action is performed on, what's the object of the action, what's the indirect object of the action, identifying your pronouns, identifying your relative clauses. And so go through uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. I don't know, I think they took Nehemiah out of my Bible last week. There it is. Nehemiah 1, what was that? Um, Yeah, 4 through 11. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Try to structure that in a phrase diagram. And then, and I said, and then break down the prayer. What are the sentences? What are the main ideas? What are your... What are your uh, main verbs and subjects, things of that nature? Okay? Any questions? All right? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time we could be together this evening and insights into studying your word. Help us to apply these as we go home and read the scriptures and try to uh, put into practice what we've seen exhibited here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.